When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, one of the great things about the aquarium hobby is that there are so many directions that you can take to enjoy it, and there's so many different, you know, avenues to explore, and that just keeps it fresh. Now, to me, one of the most, the hobby's most neglected specialty areas is brackish water uh, and brackish water aquariums. Yeah, brackish, and yeah, neglected. It's simply not done by a lot of people. Well, let me clarify. Lots of hobbyists have played with brackish water tanks over the years, and you hear, you know, YouTubers jumping on it and say, look, this is a brackish water aquarium or whatever. However, the reality is that brackish has been pretty much neglected by the mainstream of the hobby for a long time. Like, how neglected? Well, <laughs> brackish water aquariums make black water aquariums and botanical-style aquariums seem downright popular by comparison. Yeah, brackish, as in brackish water aquariums, mangrove estuaries, intertidal habitats, all that good stuff. Now, over the years, I've become quite familiar with these habitats, both as an aquarist and as a traveler, having spent many happy hours in stinky, mosquito-filled tropical backwaters, often knee-deep in mucky soil, poking around the mangroves with, you know, that delight that only a fish geek could have, right? I've kept brackish tanks for years. It was a natural complement to the reef tanks that I'd been obsessed with for so long. And it always seemed like a good way to transition from the coral world, at least on paper, right? I figured out that the tannin thing would come later, sort of a natural digression from salt, sort of sequentially. So I was going to go brackish, and then I was going to go to this blackwater botanical style thing. Brackish has always made sense for someone who's had his head firmly in the saltwater world for decades, both as a hobbyist and later as a business person and speaker and all that kind of good stuff. Yet it's at this point that I should address the common misconception that brackish water aquariums are, you know, like reef aquariums light or somehow this easy breezy training ground for saltwater aquariums. They're not. It's a separate thing. Now, brackish water aquariums do involve some skills that might be of use later on in your marine aquarium adventures, like preparing and measuring saltwater, you know, managing evaporation, and maintaining water quality in a pretty dynamic, you know, constantly changing system. You have no illusions there. It ends with that, in my opinion. Brackish water aquariums are really not a gateway to saltwater. In fact, I'd wager that a high percentage of the few aquarists who've played with brackish water have never kept a reef tank. So I think that we can get that idea out of our heads once and for all. It just, it's not fair to either you know, specialty in the hobby. Are they difficult? Well, no, not much more difficult than any other type of aquarium, really. You just need to learn the operating system. It's no more difficult than keeping a Lake Tanganyika cichlid tank or a blackwater aquarium or... Uh, you know, a, a, a tank for uh, riverine cichlids. It's just setting up the system correctly and learning the environment and figuring out how to, you know, replicate it. So if it's not harder and it's not a gateway to anything, it's just a thing to do, why aren't brackish water tanks more popular? Well, brackish water, which arguably possesses a specific gravity between 1.05 to 1.010, you can go all over and argue this one, but that's what I'm going to use is sort of a middle ground that for decades in the hobby has just not been that well-traveled. 
and it's been widely misunderstood. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, I played with brackish water for almost two decades in between reef keeping and my you know, botanical style aquarium stuff and in researching both the, the hobby work that has been done and the scientific materials out there on the wild habitats, I've sort of made the conclusion that it's simply been an afterthought at best for most aquarists. Although there is a good amount of scientific information about the brackish water habitats, which, you know, from where these fishes come from in the hobby, with the rare exception of some biotope enthusiasts, we've sort of distilled brackish water aquarium aesthetics down to, you know, white aragonite sand, a few gray rocks, and maybe some hardy plants. And it's been mired in that aesthetic hell for decades. And again, it all goes back to that perception thing, as so many things in the hobby do. I think that the perception among many aquarium hobbyists has been that brackish is more tricky to keep than freshwater, easier than a reef tank, yet offers little in the way of excitement about that you know either one offers uh, on first glance to make it worth the effort. I mean, the fish selection and availability in the hobby has not exactly been stellar, uh, with many dealers hesitant to stock many brackish fishes for the simple lack of demand and interest. Some, like scats and monos, which are classic brackish water fishes, just get too large to be candidates for most hobbyist aquariums. Others are not widely understood to be brackish dwellers. There's lots of tetras. There are even some cichlids, um, rainbow fishes, a lot of these that are brackish water populations exist in, gobies, etc. And quite frankly, many of the fishes that have been perceived to be brackish by hobbyists are actually from pure freshwater habitats, like some glass fish and maybe some rainbows, or just have some populations that are from brackish, which I just touched on, and are probably seldom imported, you know, bumblebee gobies, for example. And then there's those fishes like mollies or endlers live bears, which are urahaline, capable of tolerating a wide range of salt concentrations, which, with the majority of the wild populations being found in pure freshwater these days, but some still in brackish. Salt, in many cases, with live bears and so forth, is simply used for health purposes by breeders. It's not used as an environmental thing. Now, when I started working with brackish again a few years back after a long break, my idea was to demonstrate how we could bring some new life into this era and slightly more realistic approach. It was, you know, our slightly more realistic approach is actually somewhat of a radical departure from the usual brackish water tanks, which have dominated this obscure niche for decades. It's funny to say dominated because you just don't hear a lot about them. Look, as a decades-long reef aquarist and a botanical-style aquarist, how could I resist a fusion of the two? Besides, it was another example of the world being the way it really is and how we as hobbyists choose to interpret it in our aquariums. And I personally felt, and still feel, that we've been sort of choosing this safe, established, generally unrealistic, and altogether, can I say it, boring path in brackish for decades. And that just doesn't cut it. So I had this idea to portray the brackish water environment as it really is, not some sanitized aquarium aesthetic version. Boy, this is sounding familiar, isn't it? And of course, as you know, if an idea is a bit out of the norm, we're all over it here. And it was time to evolve brackish water aquariums into something that put function first. And when an idea like an evolved brackish system pops into my head, it's time to give it a whirl. And it starts with a few important pieces of hardware, some stable environmental parameters, and some patience. Now, there's several physical materials that are the basis for our concept of the evolved brackish water aquarium, such as mangrove branches, rich substrates, mangrove propagals, mangrove leaf litter. Now, these are all things we've touched on in detail over the years here in the tin, and you know, I'm not going to really touch on them today, but... We will revisit these, each one of these again in the future as we can start talking more and more about brack water, brackish water, brack water, <laughs> brackish water in 2022. Um, let's talk for a minute about the operating parameters that are used in our approach, or at least in my approach, just for a second. And of course, it all starts with salt, right? 
Now, when I started my last Brackish Water Aquarium, I initially targeted a specific gravity of around 1.004. That's a sort of average of some of the habitats which I've studied over the years. However, for a variety of reasons, over the lifetime of my aquariums, I often migrated the specific gravity up to like 1.010. Now, people ask me a lot, you know, which salt to use. Uh, I use Tropic Marin salt mix to achieve this. Uh, it's been my go-to salt for almost two decades. That's a brand I like. I also like Instant Ocean, but those are my two. There's many, many other fine mixes out there. I can't even begin to name them. Um, you could use any one of them. My advice to you is just like I would tell anybody in a reef tank, and I think most of my reef friends would say the same. Find a salt you like, stick with it. That level of consistency is important. So one consideration in keeping a brackish tank, indeed, is replicating a brackish habitat, is that it is a surprisingly dynamic one. And it's subject to tidal influences, which impact the specific gravity, the temperature, and the turbidity of the water. And then other environmental variations like current and light penetration. And in our approach, the influence of botanical materials, substrate, and mangroves is another factor to consider. There's that turbidity. There's that slight tint to the water from tannin, you know, tannins that are imparted by decomposing leaf litter and so forth. It's a little bit of a different approach than we've talked about in the past. So although maintaining an absolutely rock-steady specific gravity is really admirable, it's not absolutely mandatory for success in brackish. Stability within a range, like I would say in many, you know, many practices within the aquarium hobby, is more important in brackish, in my humble opinion, than nailing a specific gravity. You can, and I have, and that's kind of my thing, but I, I don't sweat it. Um, and by the way, when we're talking about maintaining specific gravity, specific gravity, one of the most important things is to have good testing equipment. Um, I'd get a digital refractometer. It eliminates any of that interpretation and guesswork when you're trying to determine these lower specific gravity levels that we play with. Um, swing arm hydrometers, the ones where you dip into the water and you watch the little arm go to the result, uh, and the floating varieties, they work fine, but they're prone to losing calibration and giving erroneous results rather easily. The digital refractometer is more expensive. You're going to drop $150 US. So I say to you, if you're going to go for it, go big. Get, get a good unit. You'll keep it for years. Keep it clean, calibrated. It's super easy to use. It gives you accurate results. It's not subject to human fallibilities of the eye. It gives you a digital readout that says what the part per thousand or specific gravity you know, reading of the water is. And it's just a great investment if you're going to play in this world. Now, I maintain the specific gravity consistent by use of a very simple automated top-off system. Uh, nothing fancy. I use one called the Smart ATO Micro. It's just a little tiny optical sensor which you place in your tank at the depth where you want the water level to remain at. And when the system detects the water levels drop, it activates this little tiny but incredibly powerful little DC pump which you place in a reservoir of fresh water below the tank, and it pumps up the right amount of water to bring the level up. Um, there's other auto top-off systems. Tunzi makes some good ones. There's a, there's a, there's a bunch. Um, and of course, you can go manually, but the automated way is so much easier and it keeps you in, in, you know, in that range. In warm weather or if you're in a particularly dry climate or certain times of the year, you will evaporate more than others, especially with open top tanks. And with specific gravity, again, not being a rock-solid important thing like it is in you know reef systems, is still important in brackish aquariums. You don't want these massive fluctuations constantly because more often than not, they're going to fluctuate for days before you recognize something's wrong. That is stressful to fishes. Now, other parameters. Well, I shoot for water temperature about 77.5 degrees Fahrenheit, 25.2 degrees Celsius. And the typical pH of my water in my brackish tanks varies between 7.6 to 7.8 and sometimes goes higher, well over 8. The KH is about 7. 
Now, these are not absolutes or recommended parameters. These are just ones that my tanks seem to average when I keep them, when I keep them going for long periods of time. It's an interesting set of readings, and we can talk more about this stuff in a future installment of the tint, and it's probably worth more discussion, especially maybe we'll have a guest on that's a little better versed at water chemistry or explaining this stuff than I am. We could talk about ionic concentrations and buffering and all that kind of stuff and in the context of this weird sort of you know botanical-style brackish aquarium that we play with. Again, water chemistry and brackish water habitats, the wild ones, is influenced by a lot of things, including the substrate, the accumulation of leaves and botanical materials, the presence of mangroves themselves, and the influence of ocean waters and freshwater rivers. So there's a lot going on. Now, interestingly, this type of system runs much more like the freshwater botanical style systems that we're so familiar with, with the exception that it's likely more nutrient rich than the typical botanical style tanks that we play with. The dynamics of you know decomposition and the ephemeral nature of leaves and all that stuff are analogous in many respects as well. We're very familiar with this stuff. It's kind of something we know all about, right? And our natural muse is the mangrove ecosystem. Of course, there are a few components which, in our opinion, sort of power the brackish water botanical-style aquarium system. Mud, leaf litter, and mangroves. Pretty easy. Now, sounds easy, but the complex ecology of the natural ecosystems is really fundamental to our aquarium approach, as it's the freshwater botanical-style aquarium analog. The fungi and bacteria in brackish and saltwater mangrove ecosystems help facilitate that decomposition of mangrove materials, just as pure freshwater you know, systems do. Interestingly, in scientific surveys, it's been determined that bacterial counts are actually higher on the leaves when they're attached to the mangrove trees than they are in freshly fallen leaf litter. And this is kind of interesting because ecologists feel that attached, undamaged mangrove leaves don't release much tannin, which as we know, might have some antibacterial properties. However, it's also been found that materials like humic acid, which are abundant in the mangroves, stimulate phytoplankton growth in the mango environment. This is interesting. There's all kinds of stuff going on. There's a very complex dance. It's way over my pay grade. But boy, it's something that we should research a little bit more about, isn't it? The leaves of mangroves, as they break down, become subject to both leaching of the compounds in their tissues as well as microbial breakdown. Compounds like potassium and carbohydrates are commonly leached quickly, followed by tannins. This sounds super familiar, doesn't it? And of course, fungi are the first responders to leaf drop in mangrove communities, followed by bacteria, which serve to break down the leaves further. So in summary, you have a very active microbial community in a brackish water aquarium if you let it happen, if you keep mangroves, if you keep a rich substrate. And this idea of a rich sedimented substrate has been another sort of backbone of my approach to brackish water aquariums for a long time. My systems revolve around the growth of mangroves, which need these types of substrates. But it's not just for the mangroves that we incorporate them in our tanks. Again, if this is sounding familiar in that urban agapo sort of way, it is. We've utilized a very rich mix of aquatic soils, uh, and similar to what's used you know, in dirted tank geeks, you know, by dirted tank geeks for many years. Uh, and I played with those for a while, and then I found, stumbled upon some things that actually were more realistic components of the brackish water ecosystems. It's amazing what you can learn when you when you find, uh, you know, scientific papers. But um, I also included buffering, you know, components and some biosediments and things like that that are more analogous to what you find in natural systems. And by managing the water quality with regular frequent water changes and careful, you know, automated top-off to keep, you know, things within a range, uh, I believe that we've been able to simulate this environment on at least a superficially functional level kind of like what we're doing with our freshwater leaf litter bed aquariums, right? It's a similar type approach. 
I wanted to create a functional mud-like substrate that would facilitate both denitrification and provide a habitat for really, you know, lots of different small life forms. And I spent a lot of time playing with different mixes of sediments and um, sands and all kinds of mud, all kinds of stuff, and even soils to create what I feel is a pretty good representative of brackish water mangrove habitat. And I formulated it to be included in our nature baseline under uh, the product name Mangal. And a Mangal, as you know, from our previous discussions, is a uh, the name given to a mangrove habitat. So this was developed with mangroves in mind, or at least with brackish water aquariums in mind. It's a little different than most of the other substrates out there that are used in brackish water aquariums, as if they're a lot, right? Now, I couldn't help but focus on my first love here, but I mean, I have to tell you that I developed this substrate for uh, a more natural ecological function um, with plants like cryptocorine. One of the ones that focused on my head, on my mind was Cryptocorine ciliata. It's a species that's well known for its ability to adapt to a very low salinity brackish water environment. But I just couldn't do it. I decided when I set up my first, you know, mangrove, serious mangrove tank back from my sabbatical, if you will, I couldn't help but focus on my first love, which is mangroves. And I employed some fresh propagals and I increased the specific gravity in my aquarium to about 1.010, which is way higher than the documented specific gravity, which uh, cryptocurrency ciliata is known to survive at, which is 1.002 to 1.05. Um, the other reason that I wanted to use such a rich substrate and what is really a non-planted tank, at least for a period of time, was to set up the system in anticipation of the time when the mangrove propagals, which I anchored to uh, the upper part of a dried mangrove root branch structure, would put down prop roots on their own and ultimately touch down and penetrate that substrate layer and create those really interesting prop roots that they're so well known for. I knew this process would take many, many months, if not a year, of course, given you know the depth of the tank I was working with at the time, but it worked. It's a very healthy environment for them to, uh, to root in. And again, patience is another key ingredient in the brackish water aquarium, which employs mangroves. You have to be. They grow slowly. They can be a little temperamental at, time, and they, at times, and they just take a while to establish themselves. Now, I also did add some uh, dried Malaysian yellow mangrove leaves to the surface of the substrate with the intention of letting them just do their thing and decompose on the substrate to enrich the habitat with the tannins and the humic substances and all that stuff. Uh, I had a crew of olive neurides snails, which was added to the system as a means to control algae and to, you know, work over the decomposing leaves. And they did a great job on both of those. So what we typically see over the first six months or so of our brackish water aquarium's existence is the development of a remarkably stable, biologically active, and really rich habitat. The mangroves, in this case, did exactly what they do in this type of habitat. They put down prop roots, they grow a lot of leaves, some of which do dry up and fall, and of course, we allow the leaves to accumulate on the bottom, just like in the natural habitats that we're attempting to replicate to a certain extent. The nutrients the mangroves seek are near the surface of the mud, deposited by the tides, which is interesting. So our relatively shallow substrates compared to what's found in nature work really well. Since there essentially is no oxygen available in the mud in the wild ecosystems, there's no point in the mangroves sending down really, really deep roots. Instead, they send out what we call aerial roots. Uh, and that's what gives them their cool appearance and makes them look like they're walking on water, as people say. They're sort of hanging on the mud. Very interesting, very interesting plants indeed. And of course, when the leaves and the other mangrove materials break down, they form detritus. And in wild mangrove habitats, a significant amount of detritus is readily consumed by a group of specialized animals and fishes before it being, you know, remineralized completely to an inorganic nutrient form. And 
production and accumulation of detritus of these systems has been, you know, correlated by scientists to lead to increased growth of the mangroves themselves. It's a self-serving system. It's pretty interesting. Now, interestingly enough, as I've experienced with my freshwater botanical style aquariums, I've seen a remarkable stability in terms of the environmental parameters and a definite solid growth in the mangrove seedlings that I put in my tanks. And it's especially impressive once the roots start touching down and penetrating into that substrate layer. What I'm seeing over and over again in these systems, and what I planned on seeing before I even took this approach, was that the substrate plays a key role in the overall setup, with the mangroves growing at a pretty significant pace, laying down thicker and thicker root structures as they grow. And I'm pretty diligent about not overfeeding my brackish tanks, like any of my tanks, but I do little to no siphoning of the substrate. Even the nutrient-rich you know, fecal pellets of the snails, which are allowed to accumulate, are not really a problem. Yeah, this is a far, far different approach than I've taken with almost any aquarium, uh, almost contrary to anything I've done before with other types of aquarium systems, with the exception of some of the botanical style approaches we've taken. And yeah, I'm okay with that. Although it seems very weird stating that I'm not siphoning the bottom of my aquariums and allowing the detritus you know, to accumulate, I have no particular feelings of negativity attributed to this practice. And as we've talked about, I'm okay with detritus, and I'm quite okay with it because it's like a well-managed aquarium we're talking about with the other basics of aquarium husbandry well attended to. And as I've talked about so many times here, detritus is not the nightmare that we make it out to be. Remember, the idea is that we're trying to work with the micro and macro fauna which reside on and in the substrate. And if you deprive them of their food sources, well, it's problematic, isn't it? It's about cultivating life forms throughout the ecosystem in your aquarium. This type of brackish water aquarium is truly one of the most stable, easy to maintain systems I've ever kept. I mean that. And really, everything has been surprisingly predictable. The biggest surprise was the rapid establishment of the mangroves, and in particular, the robust development of the leaves. They put out a lot more leaves than I expected once they started going, and the leaves, the, the roots touched down a little quicker than I expected. And the reality, the idea of creating and managing a little ecosystem is simply not that new to us, right? It's simply being applied to a different sort of aquarium. We've done this for years. It's not impossible. It's not super, super challenging just requires us to learn and open our minds. And I think that the current version of brackish water aquariums as presented in the hobby level is a good part of why they've remained so obscure for so long. They're well, kind of monochromatic, shockingly unrealistic, and I dare say boring again. So there's always exceptions, I believe that. But the majority of the brackish water tanks have been sort of mired in this aesthetic hell for a very long period of time, and they've left little to generate more than the occasional acknowledgement from the aquarium world at large. I think we can, and I think we will do better. I think we are doing better. Like anything else in the hobby, brackish water aquariums require a little research, a little work, an understanding of the natural habitats that we're trying to replicate. And of course, a lot of patience. There's no one that's taking ownership of this. I'm not the inventor of the modern brackish water aquarium. I'm not, don't even say that. Don't go there. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that I think that we can take the knowledge that we've learned in the botanical style freshwater world and move it gently into this brackish world and create some really interesting aquariums. Pushing in a new direction in this you know, rather obscure niche will require everyone who plays in it to bring a sense of adventure, experimentation, and purpose. And the rewards are going to be rich. The secrets revealed, game-changing. The lessons learned, transformative. Let's keep moving out into this territory and keep blowing up brackish. Stay curious. Stay creative. Stay observant. Stay passionate. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.